1: To night light everybody so nice of you to join us and spend a couple of hours with us this evening. We really appreciate that. If you get a chance, check out the YouTube channel as well and subscribe if you like there's tons of other shows there that we have already that we have already sort of put in the can, but they're fascinating interviews and and lots of fun, very informative and um, it's an exciting it's an exciting group of of material that we have covered. I want to thank Ken Quiet Hawk for his amazing introduction. As always, you can find him at NativeStorytellers.com. He is an amazing storyteller. It is their way of preserving history and far better than our history books because actually they they weave the truth into what they're talking about um, as opposed to some of the books that our children have to learn from. Tonight I have a cool lady here. I have uh, Varla Ventura with me tonight and she's the author of many books of uh, Varla Ventura's Paranormal Parlor, Ghost Seances and Tales of True Hauntings. She's also the author of five other books on spooky stuff, Banshees, Werewolves, Vampires, and Other Creatures of the Night, The Book of the Bizarre, among, along, along with the Mermaids, Fairies, Pookas, and Changelings, and she can often be found lurking about in the deep, dark woods and lakes of Minnesota on the hunt for beastly things and hidden history, along with the elusive Little Man of Legend as well. Uh, her topics are fascinating and I actually learned a lot from all of this and I think you're going to learn a lot from her too. So welcome to the show, Barla. I'm really glad that you're here tonight. Finally, we get to do a show.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: Well, I, you, have, you have picked topics that, you know, as a group it's a very unusual. It, it is a potpourri of the paranormal, for very for sure. But uh, you know, it's 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 material that one wouldn't think that you know somebody would delve into the way you have delved, and and it's your books are fascinating. They are they are um, enlightening in in many many different ways. How did you ever? fall into this um pathway.
2: I <laughs> uh, you know it's funny cuz I can't imagine it doing them any other way. I I think I was sort of born into an environment that fostered the um my belief in paranormal in sort of the uh, other realms of possibility, fairies, um My mother's a wonderful storyteller and would read Grimm's fairy tales to us at night, would make up these wonderfully extravagant tales. And also, you know, on her bookshelf, you would find collections of ghost stories and you would find um, things about the Kabbalah. And um, uh, there'd be an Alistair Crowley book. There'd be Tarot, um, different Tarot volumes. And so I think from a young age these were sort of things that I was exposed to. Um, you know, other people are exposed to things like going to Sunday school. That was not the case for me. <laughs> Quite the opposite, <laughs> really. Um, and I think, and I do believe, and they say this about you know children learning languages or when you learn a language that you know a kid that is exposed to another language and children that are uh, taught a second language under the age of 10, they, they'll never, they, they absorb it in a different way, and they sort of never forget. There's certain things they'll never forget about it, and it's then, therefore, easier to go on and become um, bilingual or trilingual. And I, I think that that's true also of the kinds of kind of spirituality that you can be exposed to. And for me, I was exposed to things like lucid dreaming at a very young age, um, herbal wisdom. And those sorts of things stuck with me, you know, not that I had a full comprehension of those things, at, you know, under the age of 10 or really, quite frankly, under the age of 20, but <laughs> I think that there were, <laughs> well, maybe even 30, but there's a, there's a sort of a foundation there that um, kind of led me down this, this path of exploring dark folklore and the bazaar um, with such gusto.
1: Well, you know, I think your mother had to have been and is um, a rather amazing lady because she exposed you to all of this and didn't make it frightening or anything like that. It was just this is very natural and this is something that happens, and it's no big deal. It's You know, this is another part of life, and you weren't turned on or frightened by any of this. It, you know it doesn't feel like you you know, hid under the bed for a couple of years or anything like that and and yet you know you you have a, a working knowledge of a lot of very unusual um paranormal people it, you know uh you know, certainly werewolves and vampires and changelings and um of course all of the all of the elementals and the wee folk but you know, it's 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 spectacular that your mother gave you this closure, so that you were comfortable with it, so that you were able to, you know, embrace it and enjoy it, and and not be terrified by it. It's really I, I really I. I do
2: think you, that's you know, something that happens by default with parents and children, right, that they, they pass those fears on. And when your mm-hmm. child says, I think there's something under my bed or something in my closet, people want to alleviate those fears by shutting them down. But often that actually does quite the opposite. It invalidates oh, yeah. those fears and invalidates the fact that maybe you did see something hovering there. And now you see it again and you feel like you can't talk about it. And mm-hmm. I think I hear of, um, you know, I listen a lot to, mm-hmm. I love Jim Harrell's, uh campfire stories where people call in and they tell, uh, they talk about these paranormal experiences they've had. And it's just a great, really fun to listen to it late at night, can't sleep, totally get, you'll get freaked out, but it's great. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so, uh, there have been a few times I've listened to it and thought, I have thought, I actually can't sleep now. But what I hear again and again are these stories of people, you know, everyday people who have had an experience where they have seen a ghost, heard a ghost, repeatedly had a haunting in their house. And, and so many times they are afraid, they're almost more afraid to talk about it than they are actually afraid in that moment. And that can often be brought back to it being sort of dismissed when they were young, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the, the whole concept being dismissed or a specific incident being dismissed as imaginary. And so I do think that I was very fortunate in that, you know, these things were not, I was never made to fear them. I don't feel that they were pushed upon me. You know, I wasn't. It wasn't like I was. You know, sit, sat down and um, you know, my mother smudged me every every solstice <laughs> or anything like that. But I mean, I had a working knowledge of a lot of the probably things that would be considered the occult arts just by nature of you know what you're surrounded, what you know what your family surrounds you with, and um, a- anyway at that age. Um, But I do feel very fortunate that I was raised to not fear those things because I think it did create a foundation, a little bit of a foundation of a, you know, obsession and interest in things of maybe what might be considered the dark side. But um, certainly, you know, it, it gave me a foundation of the feeling that I could explore those things without that fear not that I haven't had a few occasions when I've been afraid. I'm not saying that I'm, you know, the the toughest person on earth. But it does take a lot to scare me, and a lot of times, my the things that really scare me are have nothing to do with the paranormal, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they have to do with like what you read on the daily news. So, well, you know, it's
1: it's really it's well. You grew up in in a household that was very accepting of all of this stuff, and and it it's I I think every household should be, but I think the the one the cool thing is you now you've written four books that, that I that I ate up, and I I have to tell you I I learned a lot and and in in a way you you kind of um, I apparently have been wrongly illusioned because in 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 all of the all of the different um areas that you went into, you know, werewolves and vampires and changelings and and ghosts and um gosh, men, little men, elves, gnomes, leprechauns, tree spirits and pookas and um and mermaids. I mean, in in all of these stories um, first of all, in, in your books, you give a history, you give a history, you give a little bit of outline of what these creatures were and what their, you know, kind of what their realms were that they they operated in. And, and then you went into some, some of the, the fables and stories that, you know, are out there about them. And they're, they're fascinating books. They are so much fun to read. But I found that, you know, my my illusions especially about fairies were destroyed. <laughs> I mean they they aren't the you know, they aren't they, they aren't the little fairy princesses with the wands that you know grant your wishes and you know, that was kind of like oh no. Um actually it it's it's really kind of interesting. I had um Gary Wayne on the show a while back and he went into a lot of these um, these elementals and fairies and, and changelings as well, and they're all in the Bible, most of them, mm. and none of them are happy campers. You know, they they really <laughs>
2: you know
1: they they aren't out to destroy humanity, but but they aren't exactly out to do good and you know leave cookies on your pillow at night either. So it. Aren't aren't there any good fairies?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Bring back the illusion, Barla. Yeah, you know, there are. There definitely are. There are many wonderful, helpful helpful fairy spirits out there. Absolutely. Um, But I will say that, you know, my aim was not to really – I think there's a lot of discussion about the sort of sweeter fairies and the sweeter mermaids. And my aim was to actually sort of shed some light on this, um, sort of just paint the picture of the fairy kingdom, much as it was painted once upon a time, you know, 200 years ago in Ireland, Or um, you know, 500 years ago in the United States, the sort of relationship that people had with these creatures was not always, "Hey, how you doing?" Like you know, (laughs) help my garden. Uh, There, there's definitely there are a lot of there are garden fairies. They do like when you tend the garden, when you care for it, they will help you. There's the wonderful community of Findhorn, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which was this you know place in Scotland where. By making offerings and working with the elementals, they were able to grow, you know, massive cabbages and all these incredible plants that were much bigger than um, ever anticipated and and thriving in soils that once nothing could thrive. And so that that shows you that by you know just by nature of working with fairies, you can actually have a lot of harmony and they can bring good things into your life, but one must tread very carefully in this kingdom because it is not um it is not all a kingdom of light and and um and sparkles it really isn't there are a lot of uh you know potholes you can twist your ankle in and rabbit holes you can fall down and potions that you can accidentally sip and uh-huh. um wild ghoulish rides that you can be taken upon you know on on a midnight um on a dark and stormy night. I mean, there are many different types of, and that's the other thing too. Is when we get to fairies, we have this, you know, like the kingdom of fairy. And I think of it the way that you you might think of a plant kingdom or the kingdom of fun of fungi, you know, it's like you've got all of these different types of fungus underneath this uh, in this kingdom. And they're also kind of considered part of the plant kingdom, but they're their own kingdom. And fairies are sort of like that. They're, not quite human, not quite ghosts. They straddle this other realm that is ever present and yet invisible. Um, so it can be very maddening. And there are a lot of dark and menacing things, just as there are in the dark of the forest. There are many things that can harm you or that may not necessarily wish you harm but aren't necessarily mm-hmm. there to uh lend a hand. And there's a lot of trickery. A lot of trickery that ah, yeah. I know I know that
1: um when I moved to where I live now, my thing was I wanted to, to make gardens and there was not nothing here and so, you know, I, part of the reason I bought the house was because it had a blank yard and so I immediately it apart and I put garden beds in there and I would be out late at night and I would be talking to the the little people or the fairies or whoever was there and it was like look you guys I need help because I didn't realize I was I was built on a gravel pit so there's really no soil here but that doesn't mean we still can't have a great garden and um, I, I talked uh, people thought I was crazy but I was constantly talking to the plants and talking to the um, whoever was there to help and I have a garden that is just the most beautiful thing you ever saw, and it's not just because I was out there. There was help for sure, and um,
2: because it is a gravel (laughs) pit, there is no soil. Well, and you absolutely—that—that is probably the best relationship that humans have with fairies um, is in nature and in the the cultivation of nature in the garden. Fairies like that. They like to have a sanctuary. They like to have an oasis. And they they like being asked for help. There are also a lot of um, domestic fairies that will help you with things like housework or making sure that your animals are safe at night and protected from, you know, wild beasts and things like that. But it comes mm-hmm. with a price, and that price is that you must – there, there has to be a level of respect, and there generally has to be some kind of offering, something, something given to them that is more than uh, a trifling. Now, that could be your mm-hmm. own blood, sweat, and tears. But usually they like shiny things, too, so you can leave some shiny (laughs) things out there. But there's a lot of really fun and interesting stories about, like, fairies kind of um, tidying up a kitchen, and then one day the girl who usually cleans the kitchen is lazy, and she wakes up with, you know, black and blue marks, and she's got, you know, pinch marks all over her, and um, the kitchen's all awry again. Because she got lazy and just expected this like house browning to do all the work for her. So um, is is
1: is that kind of like in Harry Potter with a with a house? Um, oh, I forget what they were called, but they had a yeah, house. yeah um, actually.
2: Um, well, it's the Dobby, right? It's I think Dobby, in Harry yeah. Potter it's it's called Dobby, and actually in Scotland that's the word. It's Dobby or Dobby, depending on how you read it. It's spelled a little differently. It's V-O-B-I-E in most of the instances that I've seen, but it's absolutely um, and something I love, love, and I loved this about doing the research for my fairy book, or that there were so many, um, there was this incredible linguistic connection between different creatures. So mm-hmm. um, Dobby and Hobgoblin and goblins and bogies and all of these things, they're sort of Little words that mean one thing in Gaelic, that means something else in English. That mean, and they they sort of all can describe a very similar creature, or mm-hmm. a creature that might have similar attributes. They maybe not necessarily physically the same, but um, you've got you know your your trolls, and then you've got your um, you know your dwarves, and you've got your goblins, and in some cases, most of the time, we think of goblins as being these very mischievous and somewhat um, mean or even evil creatures, but in a lot of cases, when we refer to a hobgoblin or a hopgoblin, and eventually the hop and the hob were taken off, we're talking about something that's also known in Wales as a brownie. And is known in Scotland as Adobe or Adobe. And those are these little, you know, three-foot-high house spirits who help and who look after things and who like cats and who sort of, you know. And some people even believe that cats would transform into these things and help hunt the mice and protect the grain and all these kinds of very positive relationships. But you couldn't abuse them, and you couldn't take advantage of them. And, you know, if they didn't like you, there wasn't a lot you could do. I mean, if they're in your house, they're in your house. Oh, yeah. So, you know, but I just I found that very interesting because, you know, we think of some of the words that we use. And I think that most people, when they say fairy, they immediately get sort of a Tinkerbell-like image in their head. Um, yeah, and that's not entirely. I mean, there's there's an aspect of the fairy kingdom. I mean, when when um, J M. Barrie wrote Peter Pan, he you know that that was in the late 1800s in England, and he was well versed in it was Victorian times, right? So he was well versed in um, folklore and tales of the little people. So. There's a lot of elements of that that made their way eventually to what we look at in, in modern culture, but I thank God for J.K. Rowling because she really oh, just like took it all she took that and she just elevated it in a much truer way. not that I'm not saying all those things are true, but she drew upon these dark elements and these light elements and these elements of magic and folklore and kind of brought them brought them back in in the proper way so they weren't so glazed over and shiny and, and, you know, preserved inside a snow globe. They were, like, dripping and oozing under the door. (laughs) So (laughs) it's nice. I'm I'm
1: glad. Do you think that at some point in time in our history, way back, there was a time where they were all very much more a part of our reality and that, that yeah. there was a shift at some point in time where they kind of went a half dimension away. And, you know, because I truly believe there was a time where we could talk to animals. I truly believe that there was a, a time in our history of evolution. Forget what the, what the books say. I really believe that humanity had a period of time where we could talk to the animals and they could talk back to us. I mean, I'm an animal communicator now, so i I do some of that, but I mean they they literally would talk to us and we were would be able to talk to them and and the element of of the fairies gnomes and elves and changelings and maybe even vampires mermaids and you know most of them were a part of the reality as well, and we lived in harmony well and
2: and there and, certainly was fear as well.
1: (laughs) There was harmony
2: and fear feeding together. I I do do agree with that um, because I do think that there was a time when we also had to rely very much, and this was a time when things like fertility rituals or you know, a big bonfire when you're donning skins and you're dancing around the fire and you're trying to sort of transform into something wild in order to ask for the help and the protection of those wild things to protect your family, to protect your people, to protect your crops. Those things were very vital and I think it's interesting because one of our most famous uh, collectors of folklore, William Butler Yeats, and I know that Mark loves him. We've yes. talked about him before. Um, he actually, you know, he and I, I have the utmost respect for his work and what he set out to do to a certain extent, but I do think that he came from a place of a little bit of um, disbelief and also uh, the idea that he was more educated than the people who were telling these stories. And so therefore these were the old stories of the peasants rather than these were the authentic indigenous stories. And so I think that that happened again and again and again and was put into, you know, written English, which is what we in the Western world are exposed to most of the time and we don't have those kind of like, you know, we don't have the, the experience of having somebody tell us firsthand or third hand or tell the tales. And I, I think not there's a whole other thing that, uh, about storytelling that I, I, I know you, we can, we can talk about, but I do think that there was a time when you had to be more in tune with your environment in order mm-hmm. to survive. And by being oh, more in tune with your environment, you're more inclined to recognize, one, there are things out there you absolutely do not know, and you cannot reconcile. You will hear strange noises in the night, and you can tell yourself, that's a wild cat, but you know in your heart it's not. Yeah. And <laughs> no, I've, that's true. Uh, and I think you've got... also had to give it up a little more, like, okay, these are the things that we need to Give respect to because you know whether you're all in or not, your livelihood is on the line. And as oh, yeah, we became I, more industrialized, we became further away from that.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I'm hopeful that we are getting back to that time frame. When when I moved up here, somebody sent me, and I I don't remember who, um, they sent me a ferry house. Um, made you know of of leaves and moss and you know smoke stuff and and um it has a doorway, and the directions were to hang it facing the garden and to never put your finger in it and it's been <laughs> hanging there it it has been hanging in my kitchen for fifteen years. it will go with me when I move and I had a friend up here oh a number of years ago, and she there, there were raccoons out on the deck and she was Trying to, it was nighttime, and she was trying to take a picture um, through the window. And every time she aimed at the raccoon, her her screen just filled up with kind of like a ball of, of light, fuzzy light. And she said, "That's so weird." She said, "I can point it anywhere else, but when I point it out the window, um, it it gets all kind of like fuzzy." And I said, "Well." Um, and she said, what, what do you suppose is going on here? And I said, well, you're right by the fairy house. I think the fairy probably wants her picture taken. And <laughs> once you take a picture, ask her to to, to get out of the way. And, and so she looked at me and I said, I'm telling you, take a picture of the fairy house and the fairy. And, and so she, she took a picture of the fairy house and the fairy. And then I said, and ask her. And she asked the fairy nicely. And I said, okay, now... Take your shot, and she went. Oh my God, I can now take. You know, it's gone. I can take a picture of the raccoons. And you know, I I tell people it's a fairy house. They kind of look at me strangely, and it's like I said, do not put your hand in there. But she's been with me for 15 years, so you know, <laughs> I'm not sure how she's going to like the move. But you know, um, it well, uh,
2: is just maybe make sure she's facing an even more beautiful garden. And <laughs>
1: She's going to have to do put some for whiskey her
2: for in sure. there. <laughs> put some put some good bourbon in there, maybe. I'm not sure I, she's um, a drinker. Yeah. Well,
1: you never yeah. know. Sweet thing, <laughs> cookies. Cookies, I can see. But you know, one of the other things that I wanted that, that fascinated me because I didn't know a lot about them were the banshees.
2: And oh, Yeah. Now, banshees are scary in many ways, I, and they are fascinating. I I love them.
1: I I love them especially because apparently it only happens, you know, you have to have a family banshee. You can't just have a random banshee, or can you?
2: Well, so banshees are great because just, just quickly in case people aren't familiar with because I think a lot of people have heard terms like scream like a banshee or perhaps even have the drink a screaming banshee Um, but what a banshee is just by definition and the word banshee it it comes from which is basically of the fairy mound if I totally butchered the Gaelic there Um, but Uh it, it essentially is a fairy creature but it also seems to really straddle the world of ghosts more than any other Fairy creature that I have um, ever read about or studied or or encountered myself, the the banshees really kind of straddle both those worlds, and that became incredibly fascinating to me because they are essentially a portent of death. So yes. traditionally, a banshee would appear and uh, warn you of. Um Either grave illness or an imminent death, usually of someone within your family or a very small you know if you lived in a small village, someone within that group um, the idea of having a banshee as a family banshee as something that you would inherit kind of goes back to the original. Kind of the original kings of Ireland and the original clans of Ireland. A banshee by definition is is, is Irish. Um, there are counterparts to the banshee around the world and similar banshee-like beings around the world, but the word itself is is uh, used to define the Irish banshee. I'm not saying you can't have a banshee experience elsewhere, but that's the traditional definition, um,
0: that it came Mm -hmm.
2: from the fairy mound. And so originally, of course, there were these, you know, clans in Ireland, and they would have their houses. And the houses would have a haunting or a banshee that would haunt them. And so that's the other thing is that banshees are often referred to as haunting a family, although they're not a ghost. You will find in other parts of the world, Italy especially, um, throughout Europe, you'll find um, and, uh, in Central and South America as well, you will find instances of something that's more like a ghost. Often it's a woman in white, La Llorona, seen wandering along the, uh, you know, along the highway sobbing and crying. But the Banshee is, is associated with that Banshee scream, that, that high-pitched wailing sound that if you've ever experienced or heard of Irish keening, which is a way of mourning, it's mm-hmm. an a incredibly powerful song that is also wrought with um, pain and sorrow and I've always imagined that that a banshee would sound much like that, like a person in very, very deep mourning. And, in fact, banshees are thought to have been either women who died in childbirth, women who lost their children young, um, and then now spend you know eternity sort of roaming and uh, warning people when death is coming to them. That's very common that you'll hear that. And you hear that also with, like, the story of La Llorona, which is kind of been circulating. I think there was a movie out recently which I have yet to see about the, the legend of La Llorona which is um, essentially in Mexico very similar. It's a woman with all uh, um, you know, long black hair who is thought to have either drowned her children or have died in childbirth and is seen alongside highways and sometimes gets in somebody's car and can often be considered a curse. Uh, a banshee doesn't exactly curse people. She just sort of reveals the um, inevitable and that's what's so scary about a banshee because it's not even you it's not like she shows up and you know you're going to die it's not the cloaked hood of death it's like someone you yeah. love which is worse that's way worse <laughs> because because if you're going to die it's just like okay that's what can you do but you know someone knowing that you're going to lose someone that you love or care about it's you know that can be this whole other challenge so that is very but, scary, and but sometimes it's not always that. Sometimes it is, um, you know, just illness or a, a warning of another kind that's very severe. But weren't
1: there two kinds of banshees, one one that was, you know, loud, raucous, and frightening, and then there was a banshee, almost like a, a, a gentle banshee, if the person who was going to pass was a good person and a loving person and a compassionate person. It wasn't so much a scream as it was a song.
2: Mm. In most of the stories that I have read and most of the stories that I've been told about Banshees, it's almost always a terrifying whale. <laughs> but not, I mean, I don't, I don't know all of them. You know, there are stories all around the world of, you know, mm-hmm. counterparts of the Banshee. Um, now, it's interesting that you bring that up because that puts the Banshee a little bit more in the category of something like a psychopomp, which would be something that sort of guides you on to death, which I actually often uh, think of mermaids in that way, that they are the psychopomps of the sea and that they assist people who are drowning at sea to have a gentle passage. But with Banshees, they don't always appear at, the at you know, they're not, they're not necessarily at the deathbed so much as warning someone who's living that death is nigh. Um, There are different degrees of Banshees. Most of them are not malevolent. Most of them are just sort of, you know, you almost get the impression that they're trapped and they're, they're just, they're just doing their duty. Mm -hmm. But there are stories of Banshees who, um, Perhaps they don't feel that their message is being heard, and they will whip (laughs) through your house like a wild, cold wind and shatter all of your, you know, shatter all of your china and upset all of your your, uh, teacups and, um, you know, wreak havoc and just sort of tatter your curtains like as if a hurricane were coming through. So, Sometimes there are stories of that as well. Um, But just kind of going back to the, like, whether a family, I mean, traditionally a family would sort of inherit this Banshee. But here's the thing I've never been sure of. Did the family inherit the Banshee or did the family inherit the ability to see the Banshee? Because it can skip a generation. And that's true of the second sight the ability to see fairies and commune with fairies. And we see that all the time with people with um, psychic abilities and, you know, um, people who understand the paranormal and have had more paranormal encounters, sensitive. You'll hear time and time again, I'm sure you've heard this many times, well, my grandmother used to read cards or or things like that where it might skip a generation. So sometimes I wonder when I read those stories about, you know, this family ghost, I wonder, does every single person really see it? No. But a lot of people will accept it without seeing it. That's not necessarily saying they're dismissing it. But the ability to see it, it I think, comes down to a certain set of skills that you're born with. Just like some people are really, really amazing artists, naturally. And some people mm-hmm. are, have you know, incredible voices. And other people have a natural ability to um, see what other people can't see. Um, fairies, parent, uh, you know, ghosts, other things slithering through the night. <laughs> Shall remain nameless.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: I don't like
1: I don't like the slithery things.
2: <laughs> um,
1: well, you know, they they were saying you you said in the book I I believe that if it was a family banshee, sometimes even when when people were at war. The banshee knew when somebody was going to pass or die, and even though the person may have been hundreds, maybe thousands of miles away, they still they still knew it was going to happen, and and
2: they 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 did their wailing. Yes, and they would sort of appear to the family, and that was how they would know uh, that 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 person had passed, or or know that that you know, they were going to get the letter the next day, or someone was going to show up at the doorstep the next day. And you also mm-hmm. you also do have um, instances of people <clears throat> sort of so I've had a few modern tales since I wrote this book I've had some people share stories with me um, and time and again not not super frequently but every now and again there will be a story of a disembodied head um, and it's, I'm not <laughs> not not <laughs> saying that <laughs> head is floating around, but the first, right after I wrote this book, I was on a show, and someone called in, or or actually, I think, um, wrote to me, and said, can you, I'm going to tell you something, and can you tell me, you know, what you think about this, because when you were talking about Banshees, and you are describing Banshees, it sounded like that to me, Oh, and the other thing about Banshees that's kind of interesting is they do have a little bit of a shape-shifting quality, and they, are, they can appear beautiful, or like a little old lady who's sort of, you know, walking down the road innocently, you know, hobbling and carrying something, and then when you reach them and say, oh, excuse me, ma'am, can I carry your basket? Or when you open the door, they can transform mm-hmm. into something very, like, horrifying and frightening, um, and they are certainly meant to scare you. I don't think that they're not meant to scare you, but um, I think that's a way of kind of getting their message across and getting getting that attention. But um, going back to the disembodied head, so, so anyway, this person <laughs> yes. wrote to me said, I I, so what I had, and, and it always stood out in my mind, he said, I I have something, I heard, so I, he heard it and saw it, and his cousin only heard it but didn't see it at first and that's uh-huh. another thing about banshees is that some people only hear it some people can hear and see it so you don't sometimes you'll hear it in the distance or you'll hear it and you'll know what it was um but there are people that you know go the next level and actually witness and see one so that was kind of interesting to me and he said that it was this wailing noise Um, and, but it was just a a head, it was just a head floating there. There wasn't a whole kind of like creature body and, um, they didn't remember exactly what it, you know, all the details of exactly what it looked like, but, and this was years ago when he told me the story. So I've lost a little of it in translation, I'm sure, but essentially this thing transformed scream, you know, screaming, and they both ended up being able to see it and never were able to figure out what it was. So my question, you know, immediately was like, was there something that happened after that? Like, is was that a turning point? Was was there someone that passed away? And we kind of um, corresponded about it back and forth a little bit. But then years later, when I was actually researching the fairy book, I found an, another story about a disembodied head kind of ghosty thing that appeared, um, at the Crossroads in a, in a book called, um, what is that book called? It's by this man named William Wirt Sykes, and it's all about, it's like fairies and bogies of whales or something like that. And it was written a long time ago, and it's very thick with um, language, but there's these incredible stories in there that he tells, sort of, of the traditional, he was a, a consulate who lived in Wales, and um, he was I believe he was American, and he was the American consulate in Wales in the late 1800s, and he he was so fascinated with all of these old stories, and he was like living in New York or something like that, and so he was he started recording these stories kind of in the way that the Grimm's Brothers did and um, William Butler Yeats did, only um, William Mort Sykes was a little bit more of a, like a, he, he was a little more interested in the culture and a little more um, fascinated with it, and a little less, um, he seemed a little more prone to believe it, I guess. So he uh-huh. tells the story about these sort of like bogies at the crossroads that would appear, and they were these disembodied heads. Also <laughs> tied in with this corpse candle flickering light that indicated imminent death, you know, so there were some, some similarities in those stories. Now, the guy who told me the story, that happened in the United States. So I think just kind of going back to what we were talking about in the very beginning with the, the fairy kingdom and the way that you might describe something and have a name for it, but then it has the attributes of something else. That has a different name and a different appearance, but that sort of serves the same purpose in the, in the I guess, like the structure of the folklore. And you see these kind of things and it, you just sort of realize it's such a vast kingdom and everywhere there are variants. And so after spending four years researching a book, you know, the minute it goes to press, somebody calls me with a story I've never heard before. And I've gone to Ireland. I'm actually going to Ireland again this summer. I'm so excited because it's been a while since I've been back there. And this time I'm bringing my son. And so that will be kind of a different experience to to travel through Ireland and gather more stories and, you know, hear, I mean, like every time you hear something you you've never heard before. And it just kind of makes you realize that there's, there's, there's so many layers to it that you could study it, you could spend your whole life studying it, and really probably never really be able to, like if anybody ever puts out like a complete volume of creatures in the fairy kingdom, they're lying because <laughs> there's no way you could, because by nature of being fairies, they're going to trick you into thinking you know, and then I, like I lost a whole chapter in my book, to a hobgoblin or something. And I, I woke up in the morning and the chapter was gone. And I thought I must have just been working late at night and I copied and pasted over it and I lost it. And, you know, I'm no stranger to, to um, word processing programs. And so I did every bit of recovery I could do and I could never recover this chapter. So I had to kind of rewrite it. But when I rewrote it, it became completely different. And it was a chapter yeah. on hobgoblins. So
1: just playing tricks. That, that has happened. So I just thought, that has happened. You know, that's happened to me as well. You know, and it, it. Oh yeah. It's kind of like it's. It's kind of like, all right. So I am. What I had written was not appropriate. Now I have to go back and try again. And you know, when you realize that that's what's going on—that some but something thing is is saying, eh, that wasn't right or that wasn't good enough or, or, you know, I didn't feel like letting you do it." So, you know, but but it does spur you on to to greater things for sure. Um,
2: well, it was another... humbling, definitely. It was definitely humbling because yeah. it was like, "Here I was thinking, oh, I'm about to hit my deadline and everything's going well and I've done all my research and they're like, "Yeah, you're like 20,000 words short, lady." <laughs> <laughs>
1: You have another um, entity that, when I heard the name, all I could think of was what a great name for a cat, and it was Puka. And then I read about oh. what Pukas oh, were, yeah. and I decided it's a great name for a cat, but but Pukas aren't exactly cuddly.
2: Well, they are they are um, shapeshifters, though. I mean, they are usually become an animal form, and they're they're very tricky. So you mm-hmm. know, a little trickster black cat. Actually, I could see being called Puka. I had one that I used to call Pookie, but that was um, that was for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Pukas are. I love Pukas. I think Pukas are the you know the the one you'd probably want to actually. I don't know that you'd want to encounter them willingly, but if you were gonna if you had to run into a, a creature uh, at the crossroads late at night from the fairy kingdom a puka would not be the worst thing because they're really they really represent that trickster element so Mm -hmm. they love to prey on sort of the vulnerable in that they they like okay so for example town drunks are often the target for pukas because nobody ever believes the town drunk and you see this in um, Harvey with Jimmy Stewart. He's the, yeah. you know, Elwood pees out, and he's talking to this giant rabbit. and he, you know, That's his puka. That was my first exposure to a puka was that movie. And I thought, that is, it's really, and it's a funny movie, and Jimmy Stewart, he's just wonderful in it. But he's also the drunk, and he kind of embarrasses his sister, but he doesn't care. He's just talking to this puka, and, you you know, mm-hmm. You you think the puka's there and he thinks the puka's there, but then you know, you'll see the scene pull back and he's talking to an empty bar stool. This is what Puka's are known for. They're known for tricking someone. They're known for appearing when no one else can verify that you've seen them. Usually when you're stumbling home late along a path that you probably shouldn't mm-hmm. have taken. The shortcut by the cliff when you really should yeah. have just gone the long way, and you should have left the pub an hour before that anyway. <laughs> so the Pooka just, you know, Pooka will come along and, and sort of sweep you up. Pookas can appear as rabbits. They can appear as horses. Very frequently they're described as horses, usually black horses with glowing red eyes. Uh, occasionally other creatures, um Sometimes you see uh, something a little more dog-like or a little more cat-like, but usually and even a bird once in a while. But most mm-hmm. often you have a rabbit or or a horse. And the horse will take you for this wild ride. Very rarely will cause death. But death is usually only because somebody is, like, driven mad and they leap off a cliff by or fall down a cliff or something. It's not usually a... Um, trying to hurt you in that way. But I thought a lot about pukas and why would they appear at this time and what do they represent? And I really think that they exist to shake you out of your own ignorance or stupidity. And like you are literally on the wrong path. You are, you know, you are going the wrong way. You are doing the wrong thing and I'm going to scare you so much that you're going to start doing the right thing because you're going to wake up in a ditch and, and say, I don't know, it was the puka. So you hear (laughs) the puka is also sort of, you know, a great excuse for anyone who stays out a little late and uh, couldn't find their way home.
0: So I,
2: but I have, I have thought about the puka and, you know, what, why is the puka so significant? And why is the puka significant in in uh, you know early Irish folklore, especially? And there is this idea. There was certainly a lot of um, you know when, when paganism became not the norm in Ireland, and Catholicism began to take root. A lot of the traditional stories were sort of. Um, you know, shoved down in the ground, and a nice church built on top of them, and yet these creatures continued to rise. And so, again and again, in Irish folklore, you have. It's not. It's not only in Irish folklore, but in Irish folklore in particular, there's this unique and incredibly rich tradition of a strong belief in in the fairy world, in the other world, that is not in conflict with the teachings of the church, which so many times you see this like, you know, it's black or white. You can't believe in fairies and believe in God. And that's not the case at all. In fact, you're a fool if you think that, really. In, in Ireland, it's, it's much more uh, ingrained in, in the culture in a, in a normal way. Of course there are people with all varying beliefs, throughout you know it's a generalization but I think you Uh do find this idea that you were supposed to at a certain point you know you were not you were supposed to be more pious you were supposed to not stay out too late on on so you could get to church on Sunday and so a lot of these traditional preachers could be used in humorous ways to tell the story of you know jimmy O'Toole who fell down who fell down the, the the path by the by the sea again again, you know <laughs> last I saw him he was at the pub you know coming on midnight and he was supposed to be going home so it's got there there's this wonderful other element to it that that brings it into kind of more modern times, and I think really good stories can do that they can take traditions and um roll with them but also stay true to them somehow and i feel like the puka is just as appropriate today as as um it ever was well i just fell in love with the
1: name and and, and, the, and the and the and the reality of of what they are i think that you know the, these are it's another level another layer another element of our reality that that so many people tend to ignore or negate and it it adds such a wonderful richness to our lives if you realize that they're really they're actually there and you know, you're not going to trip over them though you might but you know they they might trip you they, right <laughs> exactly how many of us have tripped over nothing our shadows you know um no. it's like I damn, I knew there was something there. It must have been because I tripped over it. But 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 I I think that so many of us have become so anchored to the physical reality that that we are ignoring, you know, what what is there just just a little bit, you know, um dimensionally. A little off that that is really there. How many of us have actually seen something out of the corner of our eye and turned and it was not there? I mean, just about everybody has experienced that. Of course, every time I say something like that, then, then everybody looks at me and says, "Well, I haven't, and I haven't, and I haven't." But, but so but often that out of the corner. that they go
2: home and they're looking over their shoulder. <laughs> yeah, I mean. So it, it,
1: it happens to me. Now, I have in my house, um, my house is a really clear house as far as energy goes, but I do have a, a cat, a ghost cat, and his name is Smudge, and he was my cat, and he passed away here, and um, he is here. And um, I, I can say easily a dozen people or more have seen him. He he absolutely manifests as a solid cat, and he'll brush up against you, and you will look, and there's nothing there, no. there's no one there, but you knew there was a gray cat there, and you know it's, and, and I tell people that you know there is a there is a cat here, I, there are three cats that are real, but but there is a, a a solid gray cat, and his name is Smudge, and he he will definitely you know let you know he's here. And so many people have had, who did not believe me um, became believers real fast when he rubbed up against them. So it's, I, I think that people are missing a richness in their life to not be aware of these other levels of reality that are, that are truly a part of us that we, we don't pay any attention to, unfortunately. Um, the garden stuff, I'm a garden person. I, you know, uh, when, when I was looking for houses, at first I was looking for yards that I could plant it. And then I realized I created such a big garden here. I can't take care of it anymore. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like, (laughs) don't show me anything with a big enough plot of land because I'll make a garden. And then I realized (laughs) I was looking, I was looking at places that had these little patios and, I was thinking, now I could make a terraced garden here real easy.
2: You know, so <laughs> yes, vertical. Go vertical.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go vertical. But but you know, it's 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 amazing how it it does add dimension to your to your life and to your reality to have a have have a synchronicity with these, these elementals, these these other parts of our reality that, that you know, you don't you don't have to make best friends with them, but if you if you acknowledge the fact that they exist, they will they will co-create with you, and they will be synchronous with you in in your home and in your life. You know you, you know now. Don't everybody go out and crumble cookies everywhere looking for the fairies, because then you're just going to get ants.
2: But. Um, <laughs> yeah exactly but, you have to you have to you know exercise some uh common sense with your offerings and such but i i <laughs> um I have had a ghost cat actually since i I thought that was interesting that you said that because i the last place that I lived before the last place that I lived in San Francisco. I had one of the first experiences I had in that apartment it was this attic. I mean, I always ended up somehow living in attics of old Victorians. Um, but I had had a couple of kind of things out of the corner of my eyes or whatever, stuff like that when I had moved in there. And, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm open, you know, whatever. And then uh-huh. one night I was laying down in bed and I um, just started of drifting off to like, oh, you know, just, just finally falling asleep at 2 in the morning, whatever. And I felt something, you know, pressed down on the foot of the bed. And my first thought as I'm drifting off to sleep was, you know, you just love that feeling when a cat curls up at your feet and you're in bed and they sort of like press the covers down around your feet. I just love that feeling. And I thought, oh, that's mm-hmm. so nice. And then my next thought was, I don't have a cat. I kind of <laughs> sat up was like, and I'm alone in this apartment, you know there's no one else there. I didn't have a cat at the time, and I thought,
0: okay,
2: that was did that just okay no, no okay, I, whatever what you know I must have shifted funny, so I you know uh-huh. fall back asleep again drifting back asleep again, and when then what Would you know it the feeling of something pressing down and this time it's it's pretty hard in a way that you know just just like a big old cat would be pressing down on the covers. So I'm like, okay. I sit up and I'm like, that time I felt it and I know I don't have a cat and that was you know, that's twice in a row in like a 10 minute period. So this is definitely mm-hmm. happening. So I just thought, okay, this is happening. I'm really tired. I need some sleep. So I, I go to fall asleep and the third time it was so strong that I, I mean, wasn't like heavier necessarily but it was so distinct at that, that point that's when I just sat up and I just put the light on and I said all right you know what I'm up <laughs> all right you got me I'm up <laughs> and then I and there were other things that would happen that would make me think that a cat was in the apartment and I thought well I just I had lived with cats so much in my life and it was one of the first times that I'd lived completely without a cat so that I'm just having my like cat PTSD or something, you know, like thinking I'm seeing a cat. So used to being a cat, but so many little things would happen, you know, and I never heard, I never heard a meow or anything like that, but I did feel the presence of a cat numerous times. And then later um, I actually moved into like the rest of the attic. So it was kind of like a, a front apartment. And then originally it was all one place and I moved into the back apartment They were Uh separate now, and in that apartment, I had a ton of experiences, and my mom was convinced there was a cat in that apartment. I didn't have any cat-specific experiences, but I did have a number of um, more kind of playful, childlike experiences, and I talk about that in the Paranormal Parlor book where I kind of got into, that was one of the first times where I really sort of, sat down and thought about, like, okay, what are all of the experiences that I've had in, you know, my conscious life of, like, you know, what what kind of paranormal things have I had happen? Because here I am writing about other people's experiences, and I felt like, oh, actually, I have had a number of things happen. Um, So just I just liked that thought of of having a, a cat. And, and I didn't, it wasn't a cat that I knew, and I love that it, it's actually a cat that you knew, and you, like, un, undoubtedly, you know, you know his name. Oh, yeah. I find that, yeah. I find that no, incredibly I have, comforting. My husband, I would hope that my cat remains <laughs> long after.
1: When my husband um, moved in here, I said to him, you know, there is a there is a, uh, a spirit cat here. His name is Smudge. And he said, "Yeah, right." And you know, I said, "Just you know, that's what the that's what the cleaning lady said." And then she showed, she saw him, and and every now and then she'll say, oh, lunch was upstairs when I was vacuuming." And we were sitting in the kitchen, and and we had I had a lot of cats at the time. There were twelve cats in the house at that time because he brought three when he moved in. And um, we were sitting and talking, and and he suddenly looked under the table, and he said we don't have a gray cat, do we? And I said, no. And he said, Mm. huh. And a couple of minutes later, he looked under the table again, and he said, well, this gray cat got in the house, so we ought to find him and, you know, help him out. And I said, that was Smudge. And he said, yeah, right. And the third time, he looked, and he, he saw Smudge, and then he saw Smudge disappear. And he said, the cat just disappeared. I said, it was Smudge. And from then on, you know, maybe once a week or so, he would say Smudge was upstairs or I saw Smudge in the kitchen. And I. And most of the people who visit the house regularly know, know about Smudge because he's definitely there and he will be going with me. I, I, I happily don't have to have a carrier for him because I think he'll just come along with everything <laughs> you don't else. To
2: battle him to get into nah. the, you don't have to battle him to get him into the carrier. Yeah, the well, other three uh,
1: may be a bit difficult. <laughs>
2: oh yeah i don't envy you that
1: um, no.
2: but just kind of going back to something that you were talking about you know of just these experiences and these creatures and and um, just kind of how how that can really enhance your life, I think that there's some there's an element to storytelling that we miss out on and we can absolutely get it in when we're reading books. I mean, we, uh, I'm an author, please, you know, buy people's books and read people's books and buy my books and read my books. I mean, i absolutely think you can, you can get it. You could be lost in a story, but there mm-hmm. is something very specific that happens when you are being told a story Um, your mind is working in a different way when you're being told a story. And when you're being told a story, you are suspending your belief or your disbelief, I should say. And you're suspending Uh your doubt just long enough to sort of transform to this other place, to accept that what you're hearing could be. Even if you're going to tell yourself at the end that it was your imagination was wandering and there was this wonderful creative process happening, you're Uh still transforming into another place. You are still sort of time traveling. You're still uh, accepting these sort of fantastical ideas you're accepting them. And when, you, when you're doing that, I do think something really important is happening to your brain, you know, and I think that that gives us coping tools for daily life and the things that aren't as fantastical and fun. And without that ability to sort of just think, okay, this is possible, you lose uh-huh. the ability to think that you can do things and that you can achieve things. And so when we move very far away from a, a tradition of oral storytelling or recognizing the importance of storytelling, the importance of myths and and um, folklore and kind of, you know, explaining things, to people in the form of a story and we're taking things very literally and we're, you know, analyzing every word that's, that's coming out. And, you know, we're, we're missing that, that point, which is that kind of idea of how important it is to us as a culture to just connect in that way, to be frightened together, to laugh Mm -hmm. together. You know, we kind of get it a little bit if we go to like a play or movies together you can kind of have a little bit of that experience, but that, that storytelling, that traditional storytelling, it's so important to that because it really does, it actually gives you the ability to kind of change your, to actually change reality, to change your own reality, to change the world, to think, I oh, can yeah. do well, this now.
1: The, the announcer for the show, uh, Ken Quiethawk, is a native storyteller. And yeah, they travel. Yeah, they travel all over. And his voice is so magical; it's amazing. His
2: voice is and, fantastic. It's just so deep, that, and like it just instantly transports uh-huh. you. And that's a big part of it too, right? That, oh, that yeah, when you hear someone's voice telling you, you just like I mean, I would just accept anything he is saying. I was just like, okay, oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm with you. I am going down that road. I am with you. Because it's so, it it does put you in this other frame of mind. And that is so, that's so important. And I was kind of hearing what you were talking about in the very beginning about um, him as a storyteller. And I I just think that that's, that's something that you can find in, uh, you know, in modern culture, uh, around the world, cross-culturally, traditional cultures, indigenous cultures, and something that is very easy for us to revive with the simple art of telling our children a bedtime story at night. I mean, that's... Oh, you know, you, know even...
1: you, you you just reminded me, um, I, I ran um, an arts and crafts fair a long time ago, and when I was... Looking for people to come and be vendors and stuff. I met a lady who was a professional storyteller, and you know they are they they are out there. They're they're not as frequent as they used to be, but um, and it was amazing she could gather a tr- a crowd around her in like five minutes and have them transfixed in ten. I mean there are there are professional storytellers out there that that are worth. Looking for them and experiencing them, because they have a mastery and a magic with words that is just amazing, and they they take you yeah to to other places immediately you know it doesn't take you know it takes you hours and hours to read a book, but they can tell you a story, and in five minutes they've got
2: you and you're there right. Yeah. yeah, oh my There's God, actually, yeah. There's um, in the area where my mom still lives, in the area in California where I grew up, there is a storytelling festival every year, and it's been going on since I was a kid, and it is like a four, three, four-day festival that is all oral storytelling, and I still remember the stories, not every single story I heard there, but, uh, you know, going there, I was like an eight or nine-year-old, I still remember the stories the stories especially the scary ones that we uh-huh. were told even in the light of day it was the, so scary that we were told in the middle of the day in children's hour and it was still scary <laughs> but it totally changed my perception changed my perception of the woods around me and i know that there are other festivals like that and i just think it's just a wonderful you know when you when you meet a really incredible storyteller like that it's just um, there's just really nothing like it oh god no and you know it's
1: it's as far as i learned my family history by hearing my grandmother and my mother talk about it ad nauseum every sunday at dinner but (laughs) but it it's it's a way of and that's another reason i'm moving because my grandchildren are, are you know they don't know the family stories and the only way you get them is by hearing them repeated over and
2: over and over,
0: oh, and, over and over again. It's true. And
2: It's true. It's, That's so it's, funny, Barbara, because at some point you probably realize, like, oh, I don't, like, you're not, you're not going to hear them anymore. Like, those people yeah. aren't alive. They're not telling those stories. And you realize, oh, wait, those stories that I heard over and over again, they have so much value. And you, you absolutely must overrun your grandchildren with these stories that's yes. like that's <laughs>
1: and and a I goal. Will.
2: um it it really is <laughs> you,
1: I you had you addressed another of my very favorite paranormal creatures and and um because I I have a love affair with um vampires um ah Chelsea Yarbro, Chelsea her series of books on vampires with, with St. Germain, um, they're actually used in history classes in some colleges because all of her historical stuff is accurate. She just has woven vampires through them. And, again, another great way of teaching history, you know, because, because you're following this vampire through a culture that, that she's describing beautifully – and you're learning about history by watching this vampire go through these different time frames in, in history, which is fascinating. And she goes way back, and, and she even covers the Civil War, and I think World War I, too. So, you know, it, it, it covers generations. And same vampire through, throughout time, which was fascinating. And the other one, of course, is Anne Rice, who did a great job with vampires as well. You know, you even drove me to watch the Twilight series because I had not seen that. So,
2: <gasps>
1: yeah. So vampires. Well, um, vampires
2: and, and are yet, very. Uh,
1: you know, they they come from a a really icky past, but, you know,
2: you can fall in love with them just the same. <laughs> you can, and that you know, it's interesting because I think with. It, so I wrote the book Banshe- Banshees, Werewolves, and Vampires. And and one of the things that was so interesting to me were the parallels with sort mm-hmm. of werewolf, werewolves and vampires culturally, but also how strikingly different our relationship is with them. Although many, many times vampires and werewolves were – Targeted much in the way witches were, that they mm-hmm. that that was a diagnosis or an excuse to hang someone or burn somebody. You oh was it this that lady's a vampire that that man's a werewolf or that woman's a werewolf. Um, but uh, we have such a different relationship with them. When we think of a vampire, we absolutely think of falling in love. We think of this sort of like lustiness and this. Draw this um, sultriness and sexiness to a vampire, very glamorous. But a werewolf, we feel sort of sorry for the werewolf. We know we didn't mean it. <laughs> we, we have a totally different relationship, and and in many ways, and, and they are very very different. But it's interesting to me because so often they have evolved along kind of similar points in history, right up into Mm -hmm. you know the wonderful uh, times of um, you know sort of the 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 campy movies and the you know Frankenstein vampire and wolf or Frankenstein Dracula Mm -hmm. and Wolfman like the wonderful. Trio of Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff and Lon uh-huh. Chaney, kind of all playing these characters, and that sort of rise of these supernatural creatures um, in our culture from you know the 50s and 60s and kind of to what we have this relationship we have with them today. But um, well, I well find today is it's, it's kind of interesting. It,
1: yeah, I was just thinking, you know, a cool book would be how to how to housebreak a werewolf. Um,
2: <laughs> how to bed a vampire? That's easy. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and not get bit. How to keep you know? a vampire? Is probably more would be would be the the tricky part. Yeah, well, and I Definitely. think so. It's interesting to me because I do get asked um, about vampires occasionally, and I have actually been accused of being a vampire, which I am not. Um, mm-hmm. But I know quite a bit about the modern vampire culture uh, by nature of study and relationships that I've had and people, friends that I have who identify as vampires, um, books and authors that I've worked with who. Uh, who write about vampires, and not necessarily just in a folkloric way, but in a magical way. Um, there are a couple different magical orders of vampires who approach magic in a similar way that you might equate um, uh, someone being a Wiccan. So there are certain uh-huh. rituals, there are certain you know similar times of the year in which these rituals are practiced. Um, there's steps that you take to become part of this organization, somewhat like you might take if you were part of an organized COVID or if you were part of, you know, something like the OTO. Um, mm-hmm. So there's kind of some similarities there. Um, there are, and, and what I think is very cool about this, particular group of vampires that I've kind of come to know or I've come to know their their leader for lack of a better term is that you know they don't they're not saying oh no we don't like to dress like vampires they totally love it they love it they embrace (laughs) that you mentioned glamour and that they embrace that glamour and if you think of that original kind of that old world way of looking at glamour that glamour and glamoury that was magic that was a form of magic it was a form of flashy trickery that also sort of um you know created this incredible world and that completely exists it's a super super subculture it's not a huge teeming culture it's there's a lot of people who would probably enjoy it or might attend a vampire ball, but there are some core people who really like to live this lifestyle. It's not unlike the way somebody might be really, really into S&M. They're, they they have this lifestyle. It doesn't mean they don't go about their daily job, you know, doing regular things that regular people uh-huh. do, and you might not even know. And, you know, with the vampires, you might be able to tell if they've had, you know, bang implants or something like that but the other thing that's really cool about them and probably why you as an empath and a psychic are so attracted to them is that I have found that every vampire I have I have met and I've met a a couple that I didn't care for too much but that they Uh are by nature incredibly empathic incredibly sensitive and To the point where in many cases, it's difficult for them to function without having what they would consider to be like their donor, so that they actually are requiring the emotions and the energy of somebody else in order to kind of function in a regular fashion because they are so empathic. Um, I know many vegetarian vampires, which people think of hilarious. Not all vampires are in it for the blood, I guess. But it's very interesting yeah. because I think that this subculture does completely embrace a lot of the things that we think of and we associate with vampires. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's there's a lot of really kind of cool just tidbits about vampires. I, I, I think, like, one of the things that I learned that I thought was very interesting uh, the the rise of the vampire in sort of literature and and um, then modern culture, and we can thank Bram Stoker for much of this. Does he he taps into several different kind of overarching um, mythologies, but you know there was a time when people were doing things that were far more gruesome than anything you could imagine a vampire doing, and that was early medicine. That was grave uh-huh. robbing, and that was, you know, stealing cadavers in order to try and find out what was really inside the human body. And during that time, grave robbing was, was so common, and it wasn't like the doctors would go and rob the graves, right? They would pay someone to go and, and get, especially if someone had died, maybe they had died young or seemingly of natural causes or perhaps there was some kind of rumor about the way that they died because they were actually trying. It was against the law, but they were trying to find cures. They were trying to find ways of, um, you know, advancing medical science. So the grave robbers who are usually, you know, poor people who were paid a few pence to go into the, into the graves and, and to the crypts, a lot of these kind of... Um, Fears and superstitions about vampires arose during that time, arose
0: um,
2: because mm-hmm. of experiences that they had. For example, it was tradition to sort of cross a, uh, when a person died, you would lay their arms, you know, across their chest. That was a way of part in, you know, part of dressing the body. When mm-hmm. you think of the image of a vampire, sort of slowly you think of Nosferatu or like an early Bela Lugosi image of him sort of slowly rising up out of the coffin with his arms crossed ac- across his chest. Well, that was rigor mortis. And they would pop uh-huh. in the lid of a coffin and boing, the body would spring up. And I mean, how scary would that be? I mean, you would just like run out of there screaming vampire and, you know, never, <laughs> never, um, never go back.
1: Have you so, have you watched um what we do in the shadows? I haven't. Oh my.
2: Should i add that to my add that to my list right now. Oh yeah.
1: Absolutely. That is a, that that is a really cool series. Um but but you know, back to vampires. Um they they really are um you, you know, they have been portrayed as negative entities and yet um in 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 our in in our culture we have been afraid of them but but there are people that that literally um believe they are vampires i mean i've seen i've seen films of um a lot of the uh these people that that really believe they are vampires and have to drink human blood and there just a while back there was a on television there was a, gosh, I, I think she was a queen or a princess. She, she believed that she was the first mass murderer in whatever country this was in. She believed that if she bathed in the, the blood of virgins that she would
2: oh, live forever. Are you talking about Madame Bathory? Yes. Madame Bathory. Yes. yes. Elizabeth Bathory. Well, I heard something really interesting about her that kind of changed my whole perspective on that because I had I had heard of her and her bathing in the blood of virgins in order to stay young. And I had heard I had heard of that story and I think I even wrote about it in the vampire book. I mean, she's she's a fascinating character and also sort of fueled some of the things that Bram Stoker put in Dracula and that some of the early vampire novels included were these real stories of her. I mean, this was like, you know, history where she was um, supposedly, she was very cruel to all of her servants. And then, you know, these young women, she would, she would bleed them and then eventually kill them and, and, and bathe in their blood. But I and heard it very interesting. What? Oh, Okay. What? No, no, no. Well, uh, this this actually kind of, and it was fairly recently, I, I was listening to a podcast called Lore, which I really like. Um, uh-huh. The guy talks about a lot of topics that I'm very interested in and that I've written about. And he was talking, oh, oh, here's one about Matt, and, and I think he even corrected, I always said Bathory, but I think it's Bathory. And he says that, like, you're going, You're all uh-huh. saying it wrong, it's Bathory, because of the... Um, the pronunciation or something and anyway so but he he doesn't come out and say this he's more of a reporter of the facts in a folkloric way where you're left to draw your own conclusions so he doesn't uh-huh. necessarily fall on the side of the folklorist nor the side of the diehard historian he just sort of paints this picture and includes a lot of facts he's he an excellent job of researching i i think he does a great job So he starts talking about how she also was one of the only women of her time who actually had any power. She uh, inherited land and a castle that was supposed Mm -hmm. to go to, uh, you know, some local baron, but she claimed it much in the way, you know, you hear the story of like Elizabeth and how it was all supposed to, you know, she was supposed to just turn it over, get married, and and so Elizabeth Bathory did not do that. And the more he talked about the history and the times, the more and more it started sounding to me like the stories of the old hags who were cursing the the cows and then they were hung as witches and then the land baron next door got to take over the land by rights because they were his cows. And I started thinking – hang on a second, we might have this, we might, she might have been getting a bad rap all along and they made up <laughs> these horrific stories to imprison her because it was the only way to actually take hold of her. Now, she might have been very mean. She might have whipped people. I mean, she could have easily been a a, uh, a cruel ruler in that way. But I did start thinking, you know, how, how do rumors get started? It doesn't take much. It takes one you know false tweet right <laughs> like it doesn't yeah, it doesn't take months to convince some people and then if everybody's benefiting from this rumor and she's imprisoned mm-hmm. and and I think she dies in prison so when he started talking them he doesn't really say that he's just kind of describing the circumstances but I know enough about the history of the persecution of witches and women mm-hmm. in history to start, you know, the gears start turning in my head, and I thought I might, I might have got, you know, I might have really pegged her for something that she wasn't. So,
0: I don't <laughs> know
2: her whole story, well, but suddenly well, I started it, thinking, you know, we might want to reexamine I, how we're looking at vampires. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that 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 she was. I can't remember the number, but it was in the thousands that that she had killed and, and drained um her she was found guilty and because she was, yeah, she was royalty they 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 walled her up in her castle with just a right. small little opening for them to pass her food and she did she she died there eventually but it took her a number of years and and
2: they say she died yes, it was the a plate. long slow death. Oh, I wouldn't you I would never leave. (laughs) I would torture anyone who ever darkened my doorstep again after that. Unbelievable, though. Yeah, her story is absolutely incredible, and she's one of the few kind of like real um, non-fictionalized, I guess, just historically. um, People associated historically with vampires. There are lots of Fiction works that you know that where there are female vampires, but she is mm-hmm. one of the kind of go you know kind of go to um, oh, female right, characters she's right so up, associated. She's, with.
1: Yeah, she's right up there with Vlad the Impaler. Come
2: on, right? I mean, and he, actually, he oh, did absolutely. exist. Yeah. Oh yeah, Vlad totally existed, and he and he did impale. <laughs> yeah, certainly. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: a lot. <laughs> a lot. A lot of them <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, I wanted to I yeah. I wanted to touch a little bit too upon the fact that, that, you know, as as we have come more and more into a quote unquote modern age that that a lot of the stuff, um has come more into the fore with the onslaught, onslaught, onsla- onsla- onset of uh, spiritualism. And, you know, you've got to give the Fox sisters a little bit of credit here because, you know, they did help to make spiritualism more of a common um, practice. And because of them, um, spirit- uh, spirituality became a recognized, strangely, church, even though it is a philosophy and not a religion, in order to protect those people who were sensitive and were talking to spirits and were able to communicate with
2: those that had passed over. Yes, yes. Well, and that also, I think that that holds a very interesting place in women's history as well, because um, spiritualism, which kind of really came to its peak during the 1840s um, through about uh-huh. the 1930s in the United States, but still exists today, um, oh, yeah. was basically the belief that not just that you could talk to the dead, but that the dead actually had messages for us and that the dead had something to teach the living. So, of course, for you know, since we could speak, we've been since the first time we ever had a concept of loss or death, we've been trying to communicate with some kind of great beyond. So that concept Uh isn't necessarily that new, but the idea that you could actually use tools and that there were people who could be used as conduits to communicate with the dead and then disseminate those messages to society um, in general and and sometimes specific people, that was really the core foundation of spiritualism. And it came to a great, great rise after – after the Civil War, because there was so much loss and so much grief, that people were really turning towards spiritualism. Some out of the, you know, desperate uh, longing to speak to and find out what happened to their loved ones, and some out of curiosity, it also coincided with a really fascinating time in history because things like electricity and that great giant steam train that was starting to travel across the United States and the telephone, these were also becoming more common and becoming part of our culture in a way that didn't exist before. And so suddenly the phone could ring and you could pick it up and this disembodied voice was talking to you on the other end. And this was a telephone or, you know, the the early ways of of communicating via telegram. And so those kinds of things were happening at the same time that the spiritualist movement was moving forward, advances in photography. And so there were things like spirit photography. Now the Fox Uh sisters, they did make... Spiritualism, incredibly well-known. And something that I love about the spiritualist movement is that because people who believed in spiritualism were by nature open-minded people, often people who were part of the spiritualist movements were also people who were abolitionists and suffragettes and people who were um, forward-thinking in terms of civil rights and women's rights. So you would have people... That were, um, there was this wonderful couple named, I think it was Emily and Isaac, or was it Anna and Isaac? I had to look at my book, but they were the Posts. And the Posts were these well to do members of society who would host salons all the time. And they would have, you know, Frederick Douglass come and Susan B. Uh-huh. Anthony. And they also had the Fox sisters. And the Fox sisters were these three sisters, two of them were the quote unquote the act. And one of them was sort of the management, and their whole thing was that they could communicate with the dead. They would hold seances, and they would also put on shows, and it was usually for through uh, uh, you know parlor games. It was a it was a form of rapping. So knock once for yes, knock three times for no. Um, is there somebody in this room? Kind of when we think of like your um, quintessential seance. So many of uh-huh. those things the Fox sisters were bringing to an everyday. Now, unfortunately, they also um, like to drink. <laughs> and so <laughs> what the, the, the rumor is what brought them down is that the, two, that the one Fox sister, so the one who was the manager, who wasn't really part of the act, was married. And she was sort of the business manager. The other two who were the act, um, with some other help, you know, they had some family members some cousins and such. They made so much money. They traveled the United States. And just getting back to the way that the spiritualist movement kind of also coincided with women's history, this was a time when women in the Victorian era, there weren't a lot of options for women, right? It was like you could live a life of servitude, um, if you were married, you could live a life of servitude of one kind, or you could remain yes. unmarried and live a life of servitude of another kind. There was a lot of servitude happening. You could, you could serve God, you could serve you know, drinks, or you could serve your husband. Like those were kind of like, here's your choices, ladies. Or you went and you got a career like maybe teaching, but you just did that until you got married. So you, there weren't mm-hmm. like a lot of ways for women to really express themselves. And the spiritualist movement handed that to women in many, many ways. You had women who were channeling poetry and becoming poet laureates of the United States. You had women who were channeling novels and basically going on shows and even like the Fox sisters, they were a traveling show, almost almost on the on the edge of being like a circus performance. But they had more credibility and more respectability, and you weren 't an actor writing in a sideshow. you were this person who was well respected and thought to possess a power that other people didn 't have a power that in you know victorian era America was reserved for men of a certain class, so this was oh, very yeah. revolutionary in terms of what was happening in the United States and the shift of um, Thought in politics. Now the Foxes, like I said, they 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 actually were quite. The two sisters were 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 drunks, and one of them allegedly took a payout from a newspaper and got about a thousand dollars to say that the whole thing was fake. Mm -hmm. And then a cousin got five hundred bucks from the same newspaper to back up that story. Well, she tried to recant it later and say, no, 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 actually, it's all real. But she had gotten in the spat with her sister, and in the end, it kind of just brought their whole empire down. And they had quite an empire. No one believed them, and um, from that you know, moment forward, it was all kind of seen as this, uh, this act of charlatans. And it actually did a lot of damage to you know, the more legitimate members of the spiritualist movement. Um, And then those two actually died totally penniless. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think one of them died of alcoholism. So you also have people who were doing magic and mentalism, like Houdini and his um, early contemporaries, who actually were sort of setting out to disprove spiritualism as much as possible. Not that he was a disbeliever. Not that Houdini did not believe in the psychic arts and psychic ability, but he could spot an illusion a mile away. So he had sort of this mission where he was trying to disprove a lot of like what the Fox sisters were doing or th- or similar things in order to let people know that those were parlor tricks and that they're, you know, what was legitimate was completely, you know, something completely different. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of kind of, um, <laughs> warring, it was like a sort of warring magicians, I guess, in a way. It was a pretty fantastical times.
1: Well, there have always been people that have, you know, disbelieved, and and along with the people who have believed. So, you know, it's 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 a matter of faith. Sometimes you can't, you know, there's no scientific way of proving something other than demonstrating, and then when you demonstrate, people will always find ways of saying, well, you knew that before or something like that. But tell the story about Mark Twain and the typewriter because that's a cool story.
2: Oh, that's like the best story. That story is the story that made me write the um, Paranormal Parlor book because it's a story that I had been carrying around I had learned about a number of years ago, and I really just sort of carried it around because it was just the most incredible story. So I stumbled upon this story looking, trying to find some old writing just about seances. I think I was actually just looking uh, on the, in the Gutenberg archives, and the Gutenberg library online, and I was just typing in words like I would type in Ouija board or seance, I think I actually actually typed in Ouija board, because it's all really early stuff, like it's all public domain, so it was all pre-1920, and just, well, what's going to pop up, and this thing pops up that says, you know, a novel written by, um, written via the Ouija board, and I said, what on earth, so it's this story, and it's called Jap Heron, so I went on to read it, read the introduction And then I went on to research more about the woman who wrote it and the times in which it was written. It was written by a woman named Emily Grant Hutchings. And what she talks about in the introduction is that this novel um, was actually written after Mark Twain's death by his ghost. So Samuel Clemens came to her at a seance and said, you are the one. You are my scribe. Actually, he communicated via a medium, and uh, he had been looking for a scribe, and the story is is that when Emily walked into the room, he said, that's the one. Mm-hmm. And this medium, Mrs. Hutchings and Mr. Hutchings, over the course of about a year and a half, painstakingly uh, transcribed. From the Ouija board, an entire novel, supposedly from the ghost of Samuel Clemens, and the best part about the whole story, I read the novel. I read the novel a number of times. It's definitely got Twain-like elements. I don't think he's the hardest person on earth to replicate. If you've studied him enough, um, would love to have somebody who's a real Twain scholar really dig into it and um, pull it apart but I was much more interested in the provenance of the story and the way that she told the story of the story. She talks about taking this Ouija board, this spirit board, and putting on parentheses and semicolons because Samuel Clemens is getting tired of her mistaking his parenthetical statements for sentence for part of the sentence that he wants in the novel. Like he's saying things to her as an aside, and, and but he can't find the parentheses because there's no parentheses marked. So he's, he's running all around the board, pushing the planchet so it says per, that was parenthetical. So they come up with all of these basically keyboard shortcuts for the Ouija board, and it's like amazing. It's just amazing, and the way she's just describing this. So we don't know. What happened is they put the novel out. And it's pretty cool because Emily Grant Hutchings actually was really good friends with Patience Worth. Patience Worth uh, was a woman who um, became her her novels became very widely loved, and she was thought you know considered to be like the poet laureate. Well, Patience Worth and and uh, Emily Grant Hutchings were friends. And they both kind of attended a few of the same seances in the St. Louis area, a couple of St. Louis housewives there, you know, dabbling in the psychic arts. And Mm -hmm. she, her friend, um, has shot to fame. Now, Emily hasn't had that degree of success in her regular journalist career. And now she goes on, she finds a publisher for this incredible novel that she's worked on. And it goes to press. It actually is printed. And Samuel Clemens' daughter and his publisher, and his publisher actually owns the name Mark Twain still, and Samuel Clemens' daughter owns the, you know, the royalties and the you know, estate of Mark Twain. They find out about this book, and they basically send a cease and desist to the publisher, and he has to destroy all the books, which is why most of us will never see an actual physical copy of this book. They have to destroy the books. It actually goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, this lawsuit. And in the end, the book has to be destroyed. And really, it kind of comes down to the fact that she said Mark Twain. If she has said on, on, in the subtitle, if she had said Samuel Clemens, if she had said, um, because Mark Twain was copyrighted, so it actually became a copyright issue more than even a did she actually channel his ghost. They weren't concerned with proving whether or not the actual experience had happened. It was the fact that she didn't have the right to publish under the name Mark Twain. That's oh, wow. kind of how the whole thing got ended up in the Supreme Court and got and got thrown out of court. And if you if you look and you dig deep enough in the you know way back machine of the internet, you'll find the occasional mention of an, a trial that involved the Ouija board that went all the way to the Supreme Court in like 1916. And that's the trial. It's this trial of like. Um, uh, whoever his publisher was, one of the big publishing houses versus Emily Grant Hutchings. And she's saying, but I channeled this. This is not, you know, this is original work. And they're saying, that's not the issue. You can't publish under Mark Twain. So Did she publish now, today, under well, her own, did she, own name? Well, so Wait, did it, she... it says it's by Emily Grant Hutchings. The the book actually okay. it doesn't say it's by Mark Twain, but in the title it says Japarone, a novel um, by Mark Twain via Ouija or something like that in the original uh, in the original book. Uh-huh. So now today, what we would do is we would just take that down, take out his name, change a few things in the book, and then put it back out yeah. there, right? But at that point, I think it was completely defeated. And to my knowledge, she never wrote another novel. Um, She was sort of an amateur. But there's more to the story. And I got into it a little bit, but personally, I think this could be an entire, you know, you could dedicate an entire book, an entire research project, because there's actual evidence that there was correspondence between Mark Twain and Emily Grant Hutchings, and they may have even met in San Francisco during sort of the World's Fair time um, when he was going about and it was common for people to you know, go to these sort of literary um, visits or take classes or lectures or whatever. And there are some letters where she – so one person had written an article about this years ago saying that she wrote to him – and he sort of was, jilted her, and was just kind of like, "Find your own voice." And that that was evidence, That was enough for her to sort of, you know, write this book out of out of vengeance. Which I dismissed that idea immediately because I thought, well, sure, there you go again, you know, just saying some woman's vengeful and that she doesn't is not actually qualified. She's just vengeful, and that's why she did it. So I kind of dismissed that as her motivation although I didn't dismiss the idea that they had met and that there was, you know, correspondence between them and that she was an aspiring journalist and and quite looked up to him. There's so many deeper layers to the story when you kind of start peeling it away, and it's all quite fascinating, but it does also just kind of speak to the times, at a time when, you know, women could become famous and respected for something other than the um, what was expected of them during a time when that was very, very rare. And the psychic arts did give women a lot of freedom that they would not have had otherwise. And many women went on to build other careers on top of that. There was also an incredible woman named Ida Craddock who was actually... She's got an amazing story, and there is an entire book about her. There's a couple of books about her. Um, one is called, um, oh, I think it's called Idocratic Sexual Outlaw Spiritual. Oh, I can't remember, but it's by a man named Veer Chappell, and it's a great book, and it talks about Idocratic was arrested for the distribution of lewd materials. And what she was doing She was sending out letters in the mail. She'd advertise in the back of a paper, you know, for $1, send to this address, and I will send you what to expect on your wedding night. And women, you know, this was in the late, uh, mid-1800s, women would send their little dollars secretly away, and they would get this unmarked package, and in this unmarked package would be this very, proper but kind of like this is what to expect it wasn't really you know detailed sex education like this is going to have you know this is going to be insert a into slot b or whatever you know it wasn't it wasn't like that but it was like here's what to expect here's how to behave and and also kind of she talked also about sort of like the spiritual union of um you know the bride and the groom on their wedding night This was outrageous to many people, people who weren't used to seeing women's ankles, mind you. So this was considered absolutely outrageous. And she was persecuted by Anthony Comstock and his Society for the Suppression of Moral Vice and persecuted (laughs) for years. Now, mind you, she was only in her 30s when she died. So for more than, I think, 10 years, he persecuted her and tried again and again and again to have her arrested and to catch her. And eventually he was able to um, have her arrested for the distribution of lewd material. and her uh, sentence was to be institutionalized. Now, he was a very wealthy man with a lot of money, and he just Mm -hmm. had it out for her. She, instead of going to a life um, in a institution, took her own life, and she left two letters, one to her mother, saying why she had done it and that she loved her mother and what a good mother she had been. And the other letter was to Anthony Comstock. <laughs> it was It is, like, the biggest F-U in history. I mean, it yeah. is great. <laughs> it is just this great letter. Like, not only were you wrong, but... You'll, you won't live to see how wrong you were. You know, I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. But it's a very sad story, but it's a very interesting time. Um, and she kind of comes into the spiritualist movement because she actually claimed to get all of her knowledge from her spirit husband. She was married to an angelic being who visited her at night and gave her all this knowledge that she could then impart to other Uh, other young ladies of the time and she herself was not actually married she never admitted to having uh, sexual relationships with any men although there's a lot of speculation that that's where she actually got her knowledge but she was so um, detailed in her descriptions of the angelic order of beings and the knowledge that he gave her, not just about um, the marriage bed, but about other greater spiritual things, that Aleister Crowley made her an honorary member. He was so impressed with what she wrote. He, he, He reviewed some of her writings in his Equinox publication, and then he actually made her an honorary member of the OTO, a fairly high, I forget what her ranking was, because he was so impressed with her knowledge that he, he knew she had to have gotten that from a legitimate source. So she did wow. have some, and, and today is, is known more for that than for her um, early sex education, but it's all intertwined. And um, I highly recommend that book by Virch. He really uh, illustrates the times and what, what she went through. And I touch on her a little bit in my Paranormal Parlor book, but, I worked with Veer on that book a bit, and so I I got um, very inspired by that story and had to include it in with this collection of these other women who were very instrumental in the spiritualist movement.
1: Yeah, it's a movement that is still moving. and It's uh, still
2: moving, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good point.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, it hasn't stopped moving yet but uh it it's come a long way i the one other person woman that that you know that that has a story connected to her is the widow of the winchester fortune and and her building her house of um so long oh, as yes. she kept building
2: the the everything would, in 13s yes <laughs> yes and amazing. she was very she also was, was very interested in the psychic arts and would, would um, frequently help hold seances and actually had a room that had 13 windows that was her sort yep. of um, para, her own paranormal parlor. But another very interesting thing about her is that she had this huge amount of land and lots of money, and she was a little bit of a recluse. So she had, like, very large shrubs and things kind of planted around her estate. Well, people were nosy, and they were constantly kind of showing up at her door and trying to, you know, peek in and looking at the, at the construction. And so a lot of rumors came out of the fact that she actually was sort of a person who liked to keep to herself. She had minimal staff. She was very close with her gardener and sort of the one person that had stayed with her, at her house all those years, but especially after she lost her baby. Um, oh, and I went to the Winchester house and the kind of crazy thing. So they, they took us on this tour and um, they end up in this, you end up in this room where there's a safe. I'll see if I can get this right too, because it's kind of amazing. So there's this safe. You got so after she does, no. Okay. So, so after she dies there's there's a safe left behind, and no one has ever been allowed to look in this safe and Here's a woman who is heir to the Winchester Rifle Empire. Her husband had passed away, she had more money than she could ever spend. I mean she was that she was constantly building she was some people say she was just trying to spend all the money and she could never spend the money. so they pop open this safe after her death, and what's in it is a letter and a lock of her baby's hair. And that's it. There's Ah. no gold coins. There's no antique rifles. There's no, you know, emeralds and rubies and pearls (laughs) spilling out of it. There's a lock of hair and a letter. So it kind of shows you what she actually held in value and that she was a little bit of the victim of her circumstance, again, being a widow who didn't want to go on and remarry, who had all this money, who had a lot of power, and everybody just thought she was, like, this weird person, and she definitely was odd, I mean, she was building a very odd house, but she um, had a lot, uh, there were a lot of layers to that um, beyond just her feeling that she was haunted, but that's, a, a, a lot of people say that she was, oh, and, When I was at the Winchester house, I had my son with me, and he was very, very young. And so he was probably about three or four years old, totally inappropriate tour for him, totally inappropriate. It was getting dark. It was great. It was just like, yes, we're looking at all these spooky things. We got this, like, night VIP tour, and um, he had to go to the bathroom. So someone I was with, well, I'll take him to the bathroom. So he takes him to the bathroom. And then they have some trouble catching up with us. And later, he says to me, were you guys waiting outside the bathroom? No, we weren't. And, and he said, well, somebody was like, I heard steps, and they walked up outside the bathroom. And so, so so distinctively that when we opened the door, I just assumed someone else had followed us and was waiting to go in the bathroom, too. And when we told the guide that, he was like, oh, that's so-and-so, and described some, I forget who it was, George or something, some ghost that frequently would follow guests around when they got off the path to kind of make sure that they weren't snooping, is what he said. It was like the butler's ghost or something. So, oh, that's yeah, so cool. that's my thats my uh, uh, well, Winchester story.
1: <laughs> we we're, we're down to about a minute, so if you want to – give people your website and stuff like that so they can find you. I think this is a good time to do that.
2: Okay. Okay. So it's varlaventura.net, my name.net, a couple of V's there. Um, Also Mm -hmm. the same name you'll find me on Facebook and Twitter and all of those, all of those things. And all of my books, I have links to them on my website. You can find them anywhere books are sold. They're all in print. Um, and, yeah, I, that's about all I, I got right now. I'm working on another <laughs> book. It probably won't be ready for quite some time. Uh, I'll drop some hints on the, on the Internet about it as, as it shapes wow. up.
1: I highly recommend and, the, the ones that you get out there because they're absolutely fabulous.
2: Well, that's high praise indeed coming from you, Barbara. And I really, really appreciate that um, you took the time to read them. And I really appreciate you having me on again. It's been a delight. Oh
1: well, was 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 a pleasure for me as well. I'll have to get you back on, and we'll have to go into some more of some more of the uh, different stories we didn't hit tonight. But for now, we have to Let's say do good a night. Show. And <laughs> sounds good. You're on. All right. Thanks All again, right. and good night now.